Hey, Helicopter Podcast listeners, this is John Gray from the Hangar Z Podcast. I want to let you all know Vertical Fowler's Spring 2024 issue is now available. In our Spring 2024 issue, we head over to Leon County for a look at how law enforcement agencies in Northern Florida are combining forces to enhance crime fighting. We also visit Metro Aviation in Shreveport, Louisiana to learn about the work behind installing a Metro interior in an Airbus helicopter. We connect with the experts in the search and rescue sector for an update on the latest trends, training, and tools using helicopter rescue missions. And finally, we catch up with the Los Angeles Police Department's Aviation Unit for a look at its training programs. All this, plus highlights of some new products and services that made their debuts at Heli Expo 2024. To check out the latest issue of Vertical Valor, go to verticalvalor.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to find magazines. Enjoy. Dan Bentley, longtime friend, joins the Helicopter Podcast today. First met Dan back in my Hillsboro Aviation days when I was training. He was kind of on the way out when I was on the way in. And then we again crossed paths while flying tours at Maverick Helicopters. Dan is just one of those guys that you love. Uh, not a bad bone in him. Always happy. Always super positive. And I've always admired how he approaches his craft of being a helicopter pilot. He's very methodical. He's the guy that wants to know kind of the details. And it's apparent uh, if you've ever had the opportunity to sit in on a lesson from him or just talk uh, helicopters with him, you know he's a guy that just has so much wisdom and just takes so much pride in being the absolute best pilot. So I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. He's now flying at Classic in Steamboat Springs. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. As always, a special thanks to Celicopter for producing this podcast. Specializing in helicopter evaluations, faster sales, and superb service, Celicopter is the go-to agency for clients expecting immediate results. Celicopter's team of helicopter professionals are the best in the business. Using their aviation expertise, a nationwide network, and a proprietary 76-step listing strategy, Celicopter will convert your listing from Mayday to Payday. Ready to get started? Text HELICOPTER to one 855 That's HELICOPTER to one 735 5226 And a pilot agent will reach out. Celicopter. List it. Sell it. Done. All right. What is up? It is Halsey Scheider with the Helicopter Podcast. And I know that I say it every time that I'm just super excited to, to be podcasting today. Uh, and today, I truly mean it, and actually, I always typically mean it, but today I have a longtime friend, uh, Dan Bentley, on the show. Uh, Dan and I go way back. Uh, I always kind of considered myself like an OG, original gangster of Hillsboro Aviation, uh, but if I'm OG, then Dan Bentley is certainly uh, OG. So, Dan, what is happening? Welcome to the Helicopter Podcast. Thanks. Ozzy, it's good to be here. What year did you? What mm -hmm. year did you start at Hillsboro? Because I feel like you were already maybe a CFI when I was going through training. I feel like. 
Yeah, I was trying to figure that out as well. I started, I want to say, in August or September of 2007. Okay. At Hillsborough. Yeah. And I was, I was about a, I think, I think it was 2008, like uh, the summer of 2008. You know, I did a, I did a uh, whopping one year of college in uh, Daytona Beach, Florida. (laughs) Uh, Realized that. Realized that uh, college just wasn't for me, uh, but I came back and and I think I've talked about it on the show, but I was kind of like in this flux of like what I want to do. And my parents on my birthday, uh, which is in June, got me like a demo flight at Hillsborough. And I did a demo flight with uh, Lisa Davis, if you recall. I do. Yeah. And she, I think I was like one of her first demo flights and she accidentally <laughs> took me all the way to the downtown heliport and back. So it was like demo. a, yeah, it was like a 0.8 demo, you know? And so like, Hey, you got your money's worth. Hillsborough might've been upset with her at the time, but they got about $80,000 from me. Uh, so I think, <laughs> uh, I think the 0.8 was probably good. So I think it was around 2008. And uh, so I guess maybe you were probably about a year or so into your training. How long did it take you to complete your program? Yeah. So, this was a second career for me. So it took me a while. I had three, well, actually two children at the time. So I I had to work as well. So it took me almost two years to finish all of my ratings, my CFII. And then by the time, oh, I was just going to say, by the time I, I kind of graduated, I, uh, there were no, there are no positions. So I went up to, and they, they liked me, you know, I tried to do a good job as a student, and I knew that a job with them was my best chance at a job in the industry. So they let me go up to Mount St. Helens for that summer. Okay. And I, I was a loader. And then, how cool. Yeah. About two months later, Ryan, Ryan. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Probably yeah. Ryan McCartney. Ryan McCartney. Yeah. That's the guy. He uh, called me and he was like, Hey, I have one instrument student. Would you like to, <laughs> would you like to take him? I was like, Absolutely. Sign me up. Yep. That, that's awesome. Yeah, it's, um, you know, that's cool. That's an interesting, uh, I didn't realize that. I think it's, uh, you know, a lot of our podcast listeners are, you know, just finishing CFI, starting training, you know, kind of navigating those first steps. And, uh, you know, it's a cool token that at your time, uh, there wasn't any available s- spots, but you kind of thought outside the box uh, and you kept your foot in the door by doing actually probably a pretty fun experience of doing the Mount St. Helens loading. Oh yeah, man. I, I studied like volcanology and geomorphology in college. So going up there, <laughs> going up there was like a dream come true. Honestly, it was, it was a great summer. I, uh, pay, but it was good experience. Yeah. Well, nothing, summer. nothing at that point <laughs> in your helicopter career is great pay. Um, yeah. I um I did Mount St. Helens tours for Hillsborough, yeah. uh, kind of near the end of my time there, just as like a backup. So I, I don't know how I think I did about thirty hours of of flying around Mount St. Helens, and I don't have a background in volcanology and uh, <laughs> don't know anything about anything. Uh, but I can say that out of all the areas that I've flown, that area is just absolutely breathtaking. Um, it, it's just, it's overwhelmingly beautiful. You know, you and I both flew in the Grand Canyon 
which is also overwhelmingly beautiful. But I personally get very tired of flying through the same, you know, 15 or 20 mile stretch of the Grand Canyon. And so maybe because I only did Mount St. Helens on a temporary basis, maybe it never lost its uh, thrill, but I just, I'm so fascinated by everything there and the stories and Harry Truman and Spirit Lake and, you know, just everything that comes around Mount St. Helens. It's a pretty cool spot. Yeah, we just had the anniversary, right? Yep, so May 18th. 23 years ago. Yep. And you were, let's see, were you born? You, were uh, born you know, right? I was not. I was not. <laughs> the world was not blessed with my presence yet. <laughs> I, w- I was too. You I were too. Yeah, my parents. Yeah, 1980, my parents got married and moved to Portland from New York, I want to say in like 77. And uh, they were kind of down and out for that first few years, you know, young, uh, trying to figure it out. And ultimately, my dad became a painting contractor for his career. But what spurred that was uh, after the eruption of Mount St. Helens, the wind had shifted and brought a ton of ash uh, into Portland. And, uh, so my mom and dad started like a little pressure washing business, uh, pressure washing houses and and things like that to get the ash off. And then that kind of morphed into my dad's painting contracting business. Um, so they, they remember they were actually, I talked to my mom about it recently. They're at council crest in Portland, uh, watching the volcano erupt that day. So I just, that would be, you know, incredible. Um, and I think I think like 28 people died, but you know, considering like how big that eruption was, the fact that it happened on like a Sunday, minimal workers on the mountain, like it worked out to be fairly low carnage, you know, on human fatality wise. So uh, it sucks that more than one person had to die, obviously, but you know, just a um, a crazy amount of power, and you know, what what is it, David Johnston? You know, Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it. You know, just like an yeah. epic. You know, just epic uh, from all over. So is that what you did before helicopters? You were in that industry? Uh, Kind of. So I have a degree, I have a master's degree of like basically physical geography, which is earth science. So it includes things like geomorphology, climatology, biogeography, ecology, that kind of thing. So my master's, I actually studied eagles. I studied golden eagles and um, like their reproduction and their success as it relates to climate. So it's, it was a totally different life, um, but the helicopters were kind of a natural uh, transition. Um, speaking of that, eagles, speaking yeah. of eagles too, I, I have to ask <laughs> you, uh, not necessarily helicopter related, but you know, we're buddies on Facebook and I had seen, uh, I guess it was probably about a year or maybe a little over a year ago that you had an eagle or a hawk or again i'm yeah. I'm not a bird guy uh and you were like training this 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 was it a hawk or an eagle it's a hawk yeah it's a hawk it's a red it's a red-tailed hawk so i'm an apprentice falconer um the apprenticeship is like a two-year apprenticeship i'm almost done with it um i've always wanted to be a falconer and it it takes a lot of work and you have to be kind of at the right stage of life to be able to do so. So yeah, that's uh, that was my hawk Ganymede. That's his name. <laughs> my daughter, my daughter named him Ganymede after uh, the largest moon in the solar system. 
I don't know about you, but like I had followed your hawk falconry uh, journey on Facebook, and I didn't yeah. know that the end result was you releasing the hawk, and I was actually like kind yeah. of sad. Like, I, you know, was that yeah. like do you get attached to a hawk like you do like a, a dog or something? Yes. Yeah. In fact, that was a different hawk. That was Archimedes. So the, the most recent hawk is named Ganymede, but that hawk, I released him on Earth Day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and honest to be totally honest with you, it's a lot of work to take care of a hawk. Um, you you don't own the hawk. It's just you know I caught him wild. He's a first year passage hawk. So and uh, most people probably keep them, but you have the option of releasing them in the summer because they molt in the summertime anyway. So you can't really hunt with them. You can. They hunt in the summer, but it's the best time to hunt with hawks is in the fall winter and springtime so i just i just thought well i better you know pay some attention to my kids rather than the hawk (laughs) (laughs) and uh so i released him and it's it's nice you 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 end up cleaning up a lot of of their messes oh i'm sure and um you you know you've got a muse or a cage basically for them and you gotta you gotta hunt with them or you gotta take them out and fly them because you're responsible for their health security, all that stuff. So it's a big deal. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm happy that I had, had the experience and, um, I'm, my ultimate goal is actually to fly an Eagle because I studied Eagles and I've handled, you know, small Eagles at their nests and all that kind of thing. But that, that takes, that you have to become a master falconer and that's about five years of experience hunting with hawks. So anyway, that's, that's, that's it's super cool. I'm, I don't know. I love, I love, uh, I'm fascinated by, uh, interesting non-standard hobbies, I guess. Uh, yeah. and I'm personally afraid of birds, uh, birds, <laughs> fish, and snakes are not my favorite thing in the world. Yeah. Uh, but you know, pretty cool. I, um, yeah, I should, I guess maybe, we should get back to helicopters since this is not the falconry <laughs> podcast. I feel like I could just keep going on. I have so many questions, but yeah. I guess I'll, I'll, um, I'll divert back, uh, to helicopters. So, you know, obviously Dan, I know a little bit about your, you know, your helicopter background, um, at Hillsboro, you ended up obviously securing a student and then, you know, grew from there. Uh, how long did you end up instructing at Hillsboro and what was your first job outside of, uh, Hillsboro? Yeah, so I instructed at Hillsboro for about two years. Um, I kind of became like the instrument guy. And I think that was a good thing uh, because of that first student. So um, I did that. And then about two years in, I switched over and moved to Florida. <laughs> I worked for Bristow Academy, their military training program. And what happened, it was, it was kind of strange. So we had some Bristow Academy employees from, most of them were Colombians. I think there was one Peruvian, and they came to Hillsboro to get some mountain time. <laughs> yeah, there's no ma- mountains in Florida. <laughs> yeah, like anyway, the tallest like, the tallest hill in Florida was my backyard at my dorm at like three feet. Exactly. Yeah. So they came up there, and I noticed that they were speaking Spanish, and I speak fluent Spanish. So I volunteered to like take them to the airport, and I just got talking to these guys, and they and they told me they were, they said, hey, you should come work for us. You know, it's a salaried. CFI position. And I said, salary with benefits as a CFI (laughs) at the time I only had, I want to say like 761 hours, you know, the great majority 
uh, was in the R22, and, and they said, well, we fly Jet Rangers, which is a turbine, and Schweitzers, Schweitzer CBI, 300 CBIs. And I was like, wow, that sounds like a great opportunity and an adventure, and I'm always up for an adventure. So uh, so I moved there, moved my family down to Florida, and we had a good good couple of years down there, learned a lot uh, flying <clears throat> flying uh, Schweitzer. Going from an R22 to a Schweitzer is a little bit of a, well, you know. Cause you, yeah, I like the Schweitzer. Yes. Yeah, I got I like maybe 100, 150 hours in the Schweitzer, and uh, yeah. man, I – I enjoyed the heck out of flying the Schweitzer. Yeah. Uh, completely different than the R22. You, you kind of feel like you're flying a real helicopter, maybe just because of like the cyclic position. Um, right. And it auto is really fun. It's kind of like an elevator. Um, and, you know, I love the fact of the, the non-governed throttle, you know, actually having to correlate uh, yeah. your throttle manipulation with your collective pitch. Uh, I think it's fantastic platform. Uh, so Agreed. I think it's, uh, I would, I would fly the Schweitzer all the time. Agreed. I think all could, all things considered, it's probably the best training helicopter. Although I'm glad that I started in the R22. I think I, I, I remember hearing what you said about it. I think anybody who instructs in that, like it's a good, they're a pretty good pilot because you have to be. Right? Yeah. And there's so little, so little margin and I always recommend to people that, you know, the 22 is kind of like the gold standard, right, for training. And so if you do all your training in a, in a Schweitzer or a Cabri or whatever it may be, it's hard to get a job if you don't get hired at the school that you're at, you know. So my biggest push for doing your training in the Robinson platform is specifically intertwined with the SFAR 73 and kind of those requirements uh, and, and the fact that most training schools utilize the 22. But I do think like pound for pound, creating a good all around pilot, the Schweitzer um, is a great machine. It's less, you know, it's more forgiving than an R22. Um, and, you know, I think it makes good pilots and, and gives uh, students a really good idea of kind of that collective angle and, adding throttle and decreasing throttle and, and just things that you're not going to get in the R22. I agree. I agree. And, you know, going down there, it's funny. I, I got the job. Um, and then I went down there and my first flight was in a Schweitzer and I thought I was okay. Governor off operations in a 22. So, you know, I understood theoretically how that works, but boy, it was the first flight was, whew, it was yeah. rough. It was, it's rough. hard. I, you know, he made, he, the guy I was flying with, he wanted me to do like a quick stop <laughs> and man, whoo, when I heard that, the horn and light come on, you know, I was like, oh, you know, it's lower, so funny. Lower, yeah. roll on, lower roll on, you know, that was ingrained in my brain and it took me a good three or four flights to feel comfortable with a student. I mean, I was like, I, I think the hiring guy was really rethinking what he <laughs> his decision to hire me. Anyway, I mean, um, I mean yeah. the uh, the R22, the Robinson product has done a great job with their mechanical correlation. Co correlator, yeah, their correlator in, in flight. Awesome. It's like you know you can you can pretty much move that collective all around once you have a loaded rotor system, and the the RPMs will stay fairly, you know, uh, you know maybe a, a percent or two up or down, but the Schweitzer not so good. You know, it's uh, and it's funny that you say quick stop because 
I remember during my training when I just did a couple hours in the Schweitzer, it was with uh, a guy named Gareth Ellis at the time. Uh, and him and I were kind of like oil and water. Uh, we've since mended bridges and, and uh, become, little, become little buddies. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I didn't really like him at that time. And I think the feeling was mutual. And so yeah. not only was like the cockpit uh, a little bit tense, but I, I remember trying to do the damn quick stop. <laughs> and I just could not. I couldn't wrap yeah. my head around, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was – I, I think I – did additional uh, checkout training with Mike Morris once I had my CFI and, and lots more experience and it was a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, you know, super cool, super cool airframe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I, I, down there, I also became like the turbine transition guy in the jet ranger, which was great was for like the, for all of the Academy. Cause there were, they're like foreign military contracts. There was like European contracts and then there was FAA contracts. So that was really cool experience. I got some great experience flying all over Florida with uh, Peruvians, Colombians, guys from the UAE um, who after they flew jet rangers with us were headed straight back to United Arab Emirates to fly Blackhawks. Wow. <laughs> so uh, yeah, talk about a transition, right? Yeah. And then after that, um, I wanted to go back west because I'm, I'm from Utah originally and want to get back in the mountains. And so I uh, got a job at the South Rim flying for Papillon, which was a great experience. And they, because I had the, tr the turbine already, they put me straight into the EC-130. Oh, nice. Yep. So I got a good summer doing that. I had the option to stay, and I was doing, like, um, tours up at Amagiri, like in Page, Arizona, flying over all that stuff. And I would have stayed, but um, uh, Kyle Pratt, who you probably remember, he he's a KP. good friend of mine. KP, yeah, he, was a, he was a suit, yeah, special K, like a, a special K. <laughs> That's what I called him. Anyway, he's a really good guy. He he he, you know, called me and he was like, "Man, I just dropped my resume resume off in Vegas on my way home to Oregon, and uh, they hired me on the spot, and they're gonna pay me, you know." 80 grand or whatever. And I was like, 80 grand because at the time I was getting paid like 24, yeah. you know? And, uh, so I was like, Hey, I'm going to send a resume over there. I honestly didn't, didn't really want to work for Maverick to be honest. Um, and you know, thus since obviously I became an instructor for him and everything, but, um, I dropped it off. They hired me and I had a good experience at Maverick three years in Vegas and, and then finally uh, decided that maybe Vegas wasn't the best place for my kids to grow up. And so I took the best EMS job I could get at the time. And that, that was in Missouri, uh, flying for Life Flight Eagle, flying 407s. And um, I did that for about seven years. And in the middle of that, I also got the opportunity to fly for Children's Hospital in Missouri and Kansas City called Children's Mercy. I flew an S-76, which yep. was an awesome. Yeah, that's cool. And that was IFR. IFR gig. So, and uh, then I wanted to come back out to, uh, to the West. So I did a short stint with Metro aviation in Northern Arizona, which was cool. It's cool to go back to that area and fly. And then I uh, finally uh, settled on classic, which I am super thrilled about. I've wanted to work for classic and the company who owns classic intermountain healthcare for basically my whole career. 
And uh, I'm really glad that I've ended up here. And I work in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, uh, flying a 407. Wow. I love it. Yeah, no, I do want to really touch and talk a lot about that. I'm really curious to learn a little bit about classic. Um, but I will come back to that because I do have a couple questions. Sure. Um, and a statement. Kyle Pratt was also my in at Maverick. So uh, thank you, Kyle. I had interviewed there and I didn't have turbine time. And so they loved me. Uh, or I remember. I or remember. I thought, or I thought they loved me. Um they said, hey, if you had the 300 hours, man, we would hire you right now. But unfortunately, you know, and then a couple of years went by and um, I had heard through the grapevine that uh, Jarrett Morris had got hired from Hillsboro. And I don't think he had any turbine time. I could be wrong, but I, I don't think he did. Thank and you, right? uh, and I only had about 30 hours of 206 time. Um, and so, yeah, I threw in my resume again and, yeah, I was able to get hired Uh you know, essentially, uh, on the spot, which was really nice. You know, um, I was kind of in a, in a, uh, flux at that point in my, in my flying career. So Maverick was like a pretty big victory for me. Yeah. And, you know, I remember again, unfortunately it's like our paths have crossed, but it's always kind of like when you're leaving and, and I'm just kind of starting. So I think you were, you weren't long at Maverick, um, I think because did John Bowling uh, instruct take kind of your instructor position? Yeah, about he was. We, were, I think I got it slightly before him, and we were kind of both doing the instructor gig. I I only did that for a year. Okay, I was yeah. his. I think I was like in his first training class uh, uh, okay. for okay. for JB. Uh, yeah. Love JB. JB good guy. Yeah. He's hilarious. Um, so, and I remember obviously, you know, you being at Maverick and, uh, you know, it, it always seemed like anytime I either worked with you in person, whether at Hillsborough or it was at Maverick or saw on Facebook, it always seemed like you were kind of like always excelling at the position. You know, it, it seems like, you know, there's like guys that are kind of like middle of the ground. It always seemed that Dan Bentley was like, thriving at any company he was working at. And I think it's like a lot to do with attitude, you know, like uh, having just a positive outlook and being a positive person. What in your career has allowed you to kind of continue to always be like the guy that employers really enjoy having on the team? (laughs) Well, that's nice of you to say. Um, I, I would, I would actually say that I don't feel like I'm a total natural flyer. Like it's taken work to become a good stick. I I have some natural ability, I'm sure, but um, what I've been able to control and I learned this early in my, I I think I knew it before I got to helicopter school, but is is exactly what you said is the attitude. Um, And I, I honestly, I attribute any success that I've had to just that, just having a positive attitude and being part of the solution rather than part of a problem. Sure. Um, it seems like every organization has problems. So just being positive, come, coming to work, showing up with a good attitude. I mean, it. people appreciate that. And um, I think personally that attitude I know it was my success at Maverick. Like they, 
I just worked hard and had a good attitude and it, it gave me all sorts of possibilities um, and opportunities. Same with the EMS industry that I've been in so far. I've had a lot of great opportunities and yeah, that's, you know, if there's one thing I would say to students, like, yeah, your, your experience is important, but your attitude is really what people are going to hire you for. Um, it's how you're going to keep the job. Um, it's how you're going to excel and it'll take you as high as I think as high as you want to go. Um, not necessarily your pilot skills. Yeah, no, I agree hundred percent. Um, I, I think I learned pretty early on too, that positive attitude is not only important for your employer, but also important for you, um, as, as an individual. Um, and part of that is actually what I learned working line service in high school. I worked line service at Aurora and then at PDX and PDX specifically dealing with a lot of jets coming in. I saw like this mentality of just super, uh, unhappy pilots. Uh, and here I was like 16, 17 years old, like eat, sleep, breathe airplanes uh, at that time, you know, obsessed. And so I just couldn't fathom like, man, like, I guess I get it. Like a job can become mundane, but like, I will never be that guy. Like, I don't want to be that miserable, slightly overweight, angry pilot, you know? Um, and so, uh, I didn't always have the best attitude because I was a bit of a, uh, I had to work through some ego, uh, stuff as a young man, you know? Um, so I think that that did not help for a little bit. Uh, but I think kind of moving past that, you know, you know, Maverick is a good example. At first I was so grateful and excited to be there and the thrill and the excitement of flying the aircraft and having that job wore off fairly quick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of had like a choice of like, well, I could like be miserable, which some people were, you know, would express their misery, you know, within that pilot group, or I could just show up, have a positive attitude, uh, be thankful for the job, be thankful that, uh, I was making money and, and doing something that wasn't like a nine to five, you know, behind a desk type of gig. Um, and it was kind of twofold because it made me happy that I was there. And then from the management perspective, those guys really liked me because I had a good attitude, you know? And so I think it kind of works out for both, you know, personal mental health and happiness and, uh, you know, it makes a good employee. And so I've always tried to, you know, maintain positivity. It's not always easy. Uh, you can ask some of my med crews, uh, when I was doing air medical, mm -hmm. I was not mm. the most positive guy at three in the morning. And, uh, you know, that was a big struggle for me. I had a hard time kind of putting a happy face on for that. When you were doing uh, the children's hospital, is that is that in Lawrence? Uh, no, it was in downtown Kansas okay. City. Mm -hmm. I saw like there a, is, I was, is there, there's a base out there, right? In Lawrence? There is. Yeah. I think it's a, I want to say it's an air methods base. Okay. Different. Shows yeah. how much I know. I, I did some, um, I had a project uh, in Lawrence, Kansas for a couple back-to-back -back weekends. And I remember like seeing that you were in Missouri at that time mm -hmm. flying a 76 and I felt like I saw a 76 there at Lawrence. I'm like, oh, maybe that's him. I, I think it was in Augusta. Could have been. A lot of we did some training there. Maybe you did see us. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I uh, it was kind of like from a distance and honestly, like my... Um, <laughs> 
I'm getting better. Uh, admittedly, you know, being in helicopter sales, I should know every aircraft really well. <laughs> but there's still times uh, where I look at an aircraft, I'm like, I actually don't know what that is. Um, and so I've mislabeled uh, aircraft before, so I wouldn't yeah. hold it past me. I did just <laughs> successfully close on my first 109s, so that was cool. Three, oh, right on. Three 109s um, for an air medical operator, Life Flight Network up here in uh, the Pacific Northwest, cool. so that was uh, pretty cool. But going um, – is that like an experience that you really enjoyed going from the uh, single to uh, multi-engine – IFR, I mean, was that a pretty neat, awesome experience? Like I would assume. Uh, it was. It was. It was uh, a, a huge learning experience for me. I wanted the experience originally because IFR is always something that I wanted to, you know, check the box on with <clears throat> with flying helicopters. I just I, I was exposed to it a lot as as an instructor. I learned to love it. And I said, well, someday I'd like to do it. And I feel like I got really lucky. And I want to, you know, PHI Air Medical, I want to thank them because they gave me that opportunity. I worked hard as a 407 pilot in that area. And part of Life Flight Eagle, they have that children's children mercy contract. So it's really hard to get. And they, they took a chance on me. I, and I was able to do it for a couple of years. I would say... Um, Learning the S-76 was probably the most challenging thing I've ever learned. It took a long, long time. And one of the reasons why it's, it was such a challenge is because it's actually two jobs. <clears throat> because this was a dual pilot job. You can fly the 76 single pilot, but um, this program had two pilots and it's a good thing they did because it is a handful. I mean. It's got an FMS system, which is the same system that that's in like a 747. Sure. And uh, the two engines, you know, learning the aircraft. Um, the left seat in this case <clears throat> was the first officer seat. And so you're doing the radios, you're doing the, um, you're doing all the checklists. And this thing has massive checklists for those people who don't know. It's more like flying a, an airplane, honestly. And, um, and then, so that you learn that seat. And that seat is actually harder than flying the aircraft. Flying the aircraft is like the easy part. Sure. Um, so, and the emergency procedures, I mean, you don't memorize the emergency procedures in the S-76, which is totally foreign, right, to any single engine pilot. Sure. You get the checklist out. And there's certain things that you, you know, want to memorize. Like, you know, if you have a main rotor gearbox, a chip light or something like it doesn't matter that you have two engines you get the thing on the ground yeah just but, land <laughs> but yeah i learned yeah i learned so much especially from the guys that i flew with most of them were military uh retired military guys so guys who flew the cobra guys guys who flew the blackhawk guys who flew all sorts of military aircraft and so that was probably what i learned most because after flying you know 10 years by myself in an aircraft now having to go share the cockpit with another another guy or gal <clears throat> it was uh it was challenging because everybody's got a little different style and um that was uh that was a huge learning experience i got a lot of good uh information and i feel like all those guys were mentors to a certain extent for me 
That's great. Yeah, no, I, um, I was down in California recently, uh, visiting Sean Moretz. I I think you probably know Sean. And, uh, I I know who he is. Yeah. You know, they have, uh, the operation that he works at has a few 76s. And when I look inside the cockpit of the 76, it brings me back to like childhood when, you know, the, uh, pre nine 11 days where you could be a little kid and get onto the Alaska airlines flight and sit in the cockpit and, you know, almost just feel overwhelmed by the amount of like circuit breakers and switches. And, you know, so oh, yeah. even as an adult, you know, I, I, I sit in that cockpit. I'm super bummed. Um, we were going to be able to do an empty leg with Sean. Uh, Sean was going to take, he yeah. had to pick up passengers uh, from LA to San Diego and we had to go to San Diego. I was with my wife and her parents. And so we had coordinated uh, that we were going to fly down there uh, oh, nice. with him. And uh, of course, uh, luck would have it that it was like the worst weather in <laughs> LA ever, like just yeah. zero, zero, all day raining. So unfortunately, I did not get to experience actually flying in the 76, but you know, I'm sure the opportunity will come again with Sean. What, what was that? Um, you know, obviously your instrument proficiency uh, far exceeds mine. Um, I was the opposite at Hillsborough. I never once taught a single instrument student. Yeah. Um, in really? fact, I didn't even have my IFR until maybe three or four years into my time instructing at Hillsborough. Um, I ran out of money uh, after yeah. training and uh, got hired, luckily, as a as a CFI with the contingency that uh-huh. I would get my IFR. <laughs> Yeah. And it, it never happened. And then finally Hillsborough put a lot of pressure on and I said, well, you guys know how much you pay me. So like, if you want me to get my instrument, you can go ahead and pay for it. Uh, and, and then I'll have it, but otherwise I can't afford it. You know, you sign my checks, you know where I'm at. And so I was lucky enough to have them help me finish that training. So thank you yeah. to Hillsborough for that. Uh, Nicely done. But at that time, yeah, I, I don't, I never once had an instrument student, um, and when I went to my first air medical job at air evac, or I should say my only air medical job, obviously it's a VFR program, but heavy emphasis on inadvertent entry, uh, in yeah. the IMC. And I was super nervous, like, Oh my God, like I'm not the instrument guy to begin with, you know? And, uh, luckily a lot of it did come back and, you know, just had to take some extra time of studying and really just knowing that I needed to work harder on getting to that proficient level. And, mm. you know, obviously it's not full procedure. It's, you know, you accidentally enter the clouds and then you use the tools given to, to safely get down, but it's, it's an emergency, not, not a curated procedure, like flying actual instruments. So did, did you have to refresh quite a bit since there had been some time since you were really immersed in IFR or did everything come back to you pretty quickly? Uh, I, I have kept it up. Um, I mean, in Vegas, there wasn't a huge emphasis, but I was an instructor. So I, I, I've always known the implications of double IMC for a VFR pilot. I think I did like one of those. Yeah, I did. I did a safety, like one of those fast safety meetings in when I was at Hillsborough. And they paid me to do it. And I remember thinking like 12 people would show up and 
200 people showed up. Wow. And, and people came from all over to come to this thing. And I was like, well, I'm glad I studied. And I, <laughs> I presented and um, it ended up being like a, a, a very positive night. And I think a lot of even people after came up to me, I, I presented some of the statistics and some of the BFR pilots came up to me and said, I'm really glad I came to this because I kind of scud it to get here and I was going to scud run to get home. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like 90% of BFR pilots who inadvertently enter the enter IMC, like it's fatal. Mm-hmm. So it's a crazy statistic. And I remember learning that and thinking, okay, this is something I really need to emphasize when I become, you know, out in the industry. So uh, I've tried to keep the IFR up to date. Um, every time I would come, my crew, the medical crews kind of hated me because um, every time we'd come home from a flight, as long as it wasn't too late, I would always ask, but they were always like, yeah, we know it's good. And we'd go through an instrument procedure on the way home. Luckily, our base was next to an airport. So we had a lot of options to do that. So yeah, people, and because I wanted to get a job back out West doing IFR, uh, in the mountains, I knew that would be important. So I've always emphasized that, but yeah, it was, it was a steep learning curve. Um, actually doing IFR, uh, for that program with two people, you know, it's, it's, uh, the proceed, it's all procedures and you know how instrument works. Um, so yeah, it was a steep learning curve, but I, I learned a, a lot. And, uh, to be honest, it kind of filled my cup of IFR. I'm back doing VFR now. Sure. In the in the mountains, you know, with the icing, it's it's tough to do any IFR like where I'm at in Colorado, um, just because of the icing. It's possible probably, but I think most most companies who do it in the mountains like IH, they're typically just trying to get through the inversion layer that happens in the valleys there. And they just can't get out at all. So getting through that layer allows them to continue to operate. So Anyway. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's great that you had the experience. Um, I don't have any of that experience, no actual experience, no, uh, twin time. Uh, and probably at this point, unless I make enough money, I don't know if I'll get twin time. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, my path has taken a a little bit of a different, uh, route, but you know, I'm envious of, of friends, uh, and colleagues that have that experience. So I think it's super cool. Uh, obviously, fast forward now to your current position. Uh, congratulations. It sounds like you're at a place that you really want to be at. Uh, I don't know anything about Steamboat, but my guess is that it's like a super awesome area uh, compared to like most air medical bases. You know, I was in uh, the armpit of Central and South Texas uh, for a lot of my uh, air medical uh, experience. And and that's kind of how it goes, right? You're providing critical care access to, uh, you know, com- rural communities, at least in Texas and, and most of the Midwest. So uh, that's pretty cool. You're in Steamboat. What, uh, obviously, flying in Colorado, uh, and, and this is actually kind of cool. I had a podcast recently with uh, a, a friend of mine, Eli, who flies for Classic as well. And, you know, I didn't realize that Classic, at least in Moab, does like a lot of uh, search and rescue as well. Uh, that's a kind of a cool aspect because most air medical companies, it's very clear in their op spec that you do not do, uh, search and rescue. So is that the same where you're at as well? You guys are, uh, multi-purpose. Yeah, it is. We, uh, did a, we did a, uh, body 
recovery the other day. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, we did. And I, I've just started, so um, I've been here, you know, just a little over a month. But I've done, yeah, I've done like two, two so far. Um, had more requests, but uh, with the weather, it, it didn't work out. So I did a little bit of that in Arizona as well for Guardian. And this is Guardian Flight. So it's based out of Flagstaff. They, it's Metro and they actually do that as well. I think the University of Utah also, they, Metro has a contract with the University of Utah. So they also do search and rescue. But yeah, Classic has always done search and rescue. Um, and yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really fun. That's, this is the reason why I signed up to fly helicopters actually, um, doing search and rescue. So it feels really good to be here and the mountains, I mean, we're, we're, we're about 7,000 feet here. It's steamboat. It's a ski town. It's a beautiful, beautiful ski town. And in the summer, it's a summer resort. So it's, a, I mean, it's like the mountain biking capital of Colorado probably. And there's all sorts of stuff you can do. I bring my fly rod. <clears throat> the first elk I ever got was just north of here. So it's beautiful. And um, any direction you fly is the other reason I'm here is because any direction you fly is spectacular. Like our, our kind of our milk run is going from Steamboat straight to Loveland, Colorado, which is north of Denver. And it goes right over Rocky Mountain National Park. Wow. So it's incredible. Yeah, it's so incredible. The Never Summer Mountains. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. And these are 14,000 foot peaks. Like Long's That's peak, insane. Over 14. Yeah, so I flew, I flew by Long's Peak like three or four days ago. It was incredible. I saw the diamond, you know, which I'm a climber. So all that stuff is, is beautiful to me. And it's, it's, a, it's a national park, wilderness area, so we don't land in there unless we're requested by the sure. Forest Service or some sheriff's agency looking for somebody. But yeah, um, and, the, and the winter has been just an epic snow year. So there's tons of snow. Um, and that's one of the best things that I like about Classic is they taught me, they taught me some really cool skills about like winter, uh, deep snow landings. I mean, stuff that, that I've always been interested in doing and it's the real deal, man. It's, um, it's, it's, it's the end game for me. It's what I've, what I've always been interested in doing. Yeah. That's super cool. Uh, now being in a 407, um, mm -hmm. I mean, flying high altitude, Yeah, are these the converted 407s give you a little better, uh, high altitude performance? No, no, wow. they're not. I fly a legacy. <laughs> yeah. I fly a legacy helicopter, a legacy 407. Now they do. So if your engine meets a certain specification, you can use a supplement called FMS 12 and it allows you to, um, use you know alternative uh power charts so i think that came out in like 2016 i want to say or maybe no yeah i can't remember exactly when that came out but so our engines we we you know we do engine performance checks and if they meet a certain criteria then uh, we're allowed to use we're allowed to use those charts and it, it'll do it i mean it, it may not really like it but it'll It'll land at. Uh, I mean, I've I know guys who've landed at fourteen thousand feet in a four hundred seven. Now, typically, I mean, it's cold up there, right? So conditions are cold, and it's got to be light. Oh my gosh, I'm looking across the street, and I see a red fox just moseying on up the street. <laughs> nice. It's so cool. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, sorry. That was only in Colorado. 
Yeah, yeah, and Steamboat. It's so cool. Just walking through the neighborhood. We actually had, uh, in Texas, uh, where I lived, I had about two and a half acres. And we yeah. had all sorts of cool wildlife, um, including a, a resident fox. Yeah. Um, I don't know what kind of fox it was, but it wasn't a very big one. But yeah, he uh, yeah. he must have had a den uh, near our house because I saw him all the time. Yeah, that's fun to see that. Uh, so yeah, um, I mean, I landed at 13,000 feet the other day, just training, coming back, classic school. They, you know, they allow you to practice coming back from a flight. They, they want us to be current with our skills at altitude. And so, yeah, I mean, as long as you don't have enough, if you, you have to be flexible. So if we're going to pick somebody up, like on a search and rescue, a lot of times we have to leave, we got to leave a crew member right and we can't take a lot of fuel so i only take like right now we're only taking about 550 pounds of fuel which gets us over to uh, over to denver with you know basically 30 minutes reserve right sure. so you got to do the you got to do the 20 yeah there's a give and take on. for sure for sure but um it's all a matter of checking those charts and 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 i would say the biggest thing is I'm pretty conservative about landing. So I've never, I'm never planning a landing the first pass I come into, like everything's gotta be perfect. Like winds, you know, you're bringing in the power early, obviously. Um, and if it doesn't feel right, if the helicopter doesn't, it isn't happy, I'm going around and, sure. or I'm just, I'm just not doing it at all. So we never commit to landing, um, until things are, things are perfect. Yeah, no, I've always been a big fan of the uh, never committing. You know, um, I I've always said that go arounds are, you know, ideal. You know, and should mm-hmm. be utilized. I've actually had experiences at companies. Uh, Maverick was one of them, where I, um, in the beginning, would end up kind of flying. You know, coming into the fuel farm. You know, as a new guy, sunsets. Everyone's riding up on your tail. Uh, they flew fairly quick approaches, you know, um, and there was a couple of times where I had a hard time, you know, getting the aircraft slow enough to where I felt like it was, I was really ahead of the aircraft. In fact, I was behind. Yeah. And so I would do a go around, you know, and, uh, the good thing is, is I was praised by management, but scolded by, uh, your peers, by some of the peers. And I always thought yeah. that was interesting. Like I I always taught students like, Hey, look, you know, you, you don't have to commit to anything. The helicopter is going to tell you if it's happy. Uh, and if, if the helicopter is not feeling happy or you're not happy for whatever reason, you're behind or whatever the, the case might be, just go around. It, there's nothing wrong with going around. You know, I think, um, I don't remember who it was, but early on in my helicopter experience, I was talking to a high time Alaska utility guy. And I think that was one of the wisdoms that he imparted on me. It was like, if you have to do, you know, 10 go arounds before you're comfortable landing at a spot, do 10 go arounds. Um, you know, it's, there's no, there's no reason, you know? Um, and sometimes, and I'm sure this, this happens. I don't know if it's happened to you yet, uh, but I'm sure it's something that happens at classic operating in that environment is sometimes it's probably just not doable, you know? Um, yeah. You know, sometimes you just have to say, hey, look, I tried. Um, And because of the capabilities and the performance of this aircraft and and or just my level of experience, the safest option is just to not create a secondary emergency. 
which is hard, right? Because, you know, as a, as a pilot, an air medical pilot, search and rescue, you're there to like be the guy that can save do the, the day. Job, do the mission. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I've always been a big fan that it's not my emergency. Um, yes. uh, kind of take a selfishness perspective of like, I can make this actually a worse situation by trying to make it work, whether it's forcing weather, um, in your case, you know, landing at high altitudes, uh, obviously that comes with some serious pre-flight planning. You know, when I worked air medical, I always tried to be kind of, uh, on the up and up on kind of knowing my day, uh, yeah. in the sense of like, okay, today is going to be a, a not event. It's clear clouds forever. You know, it's cool, whatever, you know, or, hey, we have storms here, there. I kind of just had a mental picture of my service area and what my performance and limitations would be that day. Uh, that's one thing to plan at sea level. Yeah. Okay. Entirely different in your case. Um, so I'm guessing that's probably been kind of a learning curve of like different pre-flight planning considerations. Oh, yeah. The, the mountain environment. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in the mountains. I, I used to work in Alaska as a guide, as a mountain guide, and I'm a paraglider. So I've got some experience in mountains, but this is the first time I'm, I mean, I, there was some higher stuff in the, on the Colorado plateau, but this, this is what I've wanted to do my whole career. So I've, I've gone in it pretty conservatively, just understanding, especially the weather, because the weather can change so quick up here. Like we've got smoke, all this smoke coming down from Canada right now. So the visibility last night, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't great. And they're, you know, those temp dew points come together and I'm new out here in the West. So as far as, as flying, so there's, it's so dynamic and, you know, getting over the, the front range, um, like towards Denver from here, you're going over some serious mountains. So it's just, um, it's going to take some experience. I'm, like I said, I'm relatively new at it. So I'm just, I'm waiting to see what the monsoonal flow, you know, that happens in the summertime does up here, but big time thunderstorms. Sure. Um, and remember like when we flew in Vegas, it was almost like, okay, yeah, there's thunderstorms. We'll we go around them. And, you know, we typically always could, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what you, what you said reminded me like what I, what I, and I, I think a lot of people who may be listening to this, who flew at Papillon can relate to this. And I'm not just singling out Papillon, but on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, you know, the the Mogollon Rim and, and then the Kaibab Plateau, like the, the storms come from the south, the monsoon, and they're just these massive, massive cumulonimbus storms. And I remember going out there, we'd go out as a group as well. And I was kind of the first year guy. And um, I remember looking at just these dark clouds and I was like, I would continue for a while. And then I was like, it seemed like I was always the first guy to be like, ah, I'm turning around. And yeah. after I said it, like everybody else yep. said it, you know, yep, perfect. Was like, oh yeah, I'm turning around too. And I'm turning around too. So it, it takes somebody, you know, saying something and being like, you know, or, and it's the same in the EMS industry with your crew. Like the best time to decide that the weather's not good is as soon as possible. Right. Because once you get more than halfway there, now it's like, ah, oh, well, and, and this is a, it's a trap for, you know, for VFR pilots, um, you know, private owners, which I know you, you work a lot with because 
if, especially if they need to get somewhere, right? Like a doctor or somebody, I got to, I got to do this surgery up in Wyoming today. If you have like a, a, you know, something that you need to get to and you're flying, that's a recipe for some potential disaster because once you get more than halfway there, now it's like, yeah, I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. It's like lower, you're committed. Just yeah. And you commit, get their itis and it's a serious hazardous attitude. And that's the last thing I want to do is, kill myself and kill the crew. And, you know, it's a, it would be a PR nightmare for the company I work for. Uh, and least of all, you know, the, uh, the patient, the poor patient that we're transporting. So. Yeah. It doesn't do yeah. any, it doesn't do anyone any good to push it, you know, and it's bad. It's even bad for at, the whole industry. Yeah, no, it's not good. At, yeah. It's horrible for the industry. Um, you know, the Kobe accident is a, a good example of, of pushing it. Um, and there's countless accident reports that, you know, it's just like the same trap, you know, and it's easy to Monday yeah. morning quarterback, you know, certain decisions. Yeah. And, um, I don't necessarily like to do that. I, I kind of look at it like, man, I've been there. I've felt that feeling yeah. before. Yeah. Um, and it's like being able to recognize that, okay, like a lot of people have died with this same oh, yeah. mindset, you know? Well, and, and we're not inventing new ways to crash. Like these are the same things, this is, you know, <laughs> yeah. with power. It's, it's CFIT mostly, right? And, um, you know, there's a few others, dynamic rollover and what, LTE, you know, as a yep. result of settling with power and, you know, high altitude or not enough power. So, yeah, it's all the same stuff. So, um, in my opinion, you know, if you can, if you fly these helicopters within their limitations, like they are very, very safe, extremely safe. It's when you go outside of those, you know, VFR parameters that you're you're asking for it yeah it's uh they're 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 good till they're not good and they're usually not good because the pilot put them in a not so good position um and i think i talked about that recently i did like a solo podcast just talking about robinson uh, products specifically and you know they get a bad rap performance and blah 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 yeah obviously they don't create a a ton of power but they're good at what they do in, in my opinion and what you learn as a professional aviator is that every aircraft has its limits and uh, you can, you can exceed limits sometimes and uh, you get away, you know, and, and I've had moments in my career where I'll, I'll look back at something and I'll reflect and say, you know, that was, you know, that was lucky that it didn't go a different direction uh, and you learn from it. You know, I think it's just human, the human condition that you're going to make some mistakes, judgment calls, errors, performance, whatever it may be. Sometimes you just get, you know, sometimes you do everything right and, and you still end up in a bad position, you know, weather changes really fast or, or whatever may be the case. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, we kind of always laugh about the FAA, you know, kind of written test questions and the hazardous attitudes. And the silly part about the hazardous attitudes is they're so true, you know, like yeah, if, if you're not going to take anything away from some of the FAA teaching, you know, my recommendation is to really focus on the hazardous attitudes because they truly are what gets so many people in trouble. Uh, it's what's going to get you killed. Yeah. It's not, you know, um, oftentimes, like you said, the helicopters will um, continue to run. Even even if there's a, a, a malfunction or some type of issue with the aircraft, usually you still have enough time to get it somewhere safe. Uh, most accidents uh, are, are unfortunately caused by the, the, the meat servo up front, 
you know, making a bad decision, putting themselves in a bad spot. (laughs) And, you know, even as a professional pilot, I've been in situations that I caught me by surprise, you know, and it was like, uh, you know, just not getting comfortable maybe for a second and not Mm -hmm. understanding the full scope of, of everything that's happening. You know, I put myself one and only time, um, that I've had like legitimate settling with power was completely, Mm -hmm. uh, and utterly induced, you know, by myself, you know, I did it. It was me. Um, you know, thinking the winds were the same at altitude as they were at the surface and not really paying attention. Uh, it was dark. I was flying ENG, uh, so electronic news gathering, orbiting. Distractions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, honestly, I could tell you not even a ton of distraction. It was like oh, yeah. more so just not paying attention to what the helicopter was doing in my orbit and then ultimately getting into settling with power. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and it was like totally – uh, sadly caught me off guard, um, plenty of altitude got out of it real quick, but it was like a, Oh, that was stupid. You know? And it was just, uh, I consider myself a good pilot, uh, a good, Mm -hmm. I have good judgment. I'm very conservative. Uh, but at that point I had an attitude that of just kind of like, eh, this is, this is the milk run. I do this every morning, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it caught me. So I think it's easy to get into that, you know, even really good pilots, really uh, not not saying that I'm great, but again, I've always taken a level of, of conservative, a conservative approach. So we're all capable of, of doing something stupid, you know? And so. Absolutely. And when you're flying at 14,000 feet, your margin for doing something stupid is really decreased. So you know, I, I, I can only imagine, um, you know, the mental approach that you have to bring, you know, you really have to bring your A game flying where you're flying. Yeah, you do. I mean, and that's another good point. I actually wrote down some things and that that's one of them is, you know, you got to have a plan because in my experience, you know, you, and a lot of this came from the Grand Canyon because when I first got there to Maverick, I was like, okay, well, you guys want things so strict, like what if this happens? And they, they relied on us to think, but they also don't didn't want us to think, right? They wanted they wanted everything how they wanted it, which is good. It was a good experience. But I remember like I think I came up with a big long list of like um scenarios or like well what and it was mostly for just discussion, right? So just so I could help the neuter students who were in my position, you know, have some sort of plan because in my experience if you don't have a plan i mean and there's emergency procedures that's the plan right but in certain scenarios you know i think you know i can't remember what off the top of my head you know one if you have an engine fire it's like enter an auto rotation (laughs) yeah well that that might not be the best idea if you know like take that with a grain of salt yeah it's good to follow the rotorcraft flying handbook for sure but um you know, you want to think about where you're entering that auto rotation yeah. based off of your scenario. Exactly. Right? I'd much, I'd much rather have an engine, even even if it's on fire, um, that I need to get down quick. I can get down quick, you know, with the collective. Uh, I don't necessarily have to enter an auto rotation. Totally. I'm happy to do that and be prepared to do that by the time I get to the ground. But right, you know what I'm saying. So, so yeah, 
um, up there, it, I think it's especially important to think about, okay, right now, if I have an engine failure, which is much ado about nothing, right? Because those engines are so good, but, but yeah, what if this happens? Okay, where am I going? So you don't paint yourself in a corner, right? You're going to approach wherever you're landing with options, right? I can go to the left, I can go right. So I'm going to approach, I'm going to try to approach on that ridge line. I'm going to try to take like a right crosswind rather than a left crosswind for LTE, right? You're taking all this stuff into account. Um, yeah, LTE is a big one at altitude for sure. Oh, even the, even totally. The, even the 407, it's got a really good tail rotor. Uh, but I've, there's been a couple of times when I'm like, Ooh, I'm, you know, and especially that main rotor disc interference, right? Because it's so subtle. It, it makes you think, you know, that you need to use right pedal because there's just that momentary left yaw. So you put right pedal in and then all of a sudden that's gone. <laughs> you've already, you've already got right pedal in. And so now potentially it induces that right, you know, that right yaw that uh, the only way to get out of that typically is to lower the torque um, and, and get some forward airspeed. So you just got to be aware of what the wind's doing, which is sometimes really hard up there. There's not a lot of wind indication, you know, so you're looking at your GPS, you're, you're looking at, and, and a lot of it's like feel the helicopter feel. So anyway, my point being like in my in my experience, if you don't have a plan, you're going to do exactly what you've been trained to do. And if you didn't train to do anything, you're going to do just that. Yeah, um, exactly. Right? It's so true. Yeah. You know, you got to, um, you always have to, and that's kind of like the, uh, the unfun, the unfun part of flying a helicopter is you truly have to at all times kind of have an idea of what you're going to do. You know, even at Maverick, I remember I would be giving a tour and I would be at this spot, okay, this is where I'm going when this goes to poo-poo, you know? And <laughs> yeah. if I have to do this, I'm going here. And it's like this constant, like you almost can't even just sit back and enjoy what you're doing. It's, you're kind yeah. of like always, uh, obsessed. you know, I was always kind of on edge. I don't know if that's the best word, but truly uh, always expecting, uh, which kind of drove me nuts actually about flying helicopters is, is yeah. Uh, because, you know, you truly have to, uh, always be at least the way I approached it was kind of planning for that worst case scenario. And, um, and like you said, when you're operating where you're operating, you have to kind of do that more and more and more. Um, and as I'm sure you can attest, like the mountains can give you some favorable performance enhancement with wind. For sure. You know, oh, and if yeah. you're, yeah, if that's you're my using, favorite part about it. Yeah. yeah love it's it. if you're using it correctly, then, you know, it's actually, um, it's, it's to your benefit, but incorrectly used or misjudged, uh, could be a catastrophic result. Uh, I'm sure like the paragliding, uh, background is really made you, uh, a better mountain pilot, you know, um, I can imagine, I mean, I have no paragliding experience, but what I do know, it kind of seems like paragliders are really good at understanding, you know, uh, winds and, and how wind and air react, uh, around, you know, mountain and, and terrain and things like that. So I'm sure that that's kind of helped give you a better sight picture of, uh, of operating the helicopter. Yeah, it, it has. Um, I wouldn't say I'm an expert at flying in the mountains by any means, but, you know, knowing where, those updrafts are because that's my favorite thing about flying is using the ridge lift right to like what and i i like so in our 407 we got a seat up front um it's like a special situation with with the litter 
and anyway, so there's a crew member up front. That's the best part about it is like, okay, watch this. Like if I can predict what's going to happen and then it happens and it makes me look good, it's like the <laughs> best thing ever. Yeah. Right. Cause you're like, watch this. I'm not even going to raise the collector. We're going to have a thousand foot per minute climb rate. Right. It's crazy. You're, you're like 300 feet off the deck on the windward side of a ridge. Right. And you're just like, just cruising up the mountain. Like you, but you know, there's, there's the opposite of that too. Cause if you were on the wrong side or you misjudge the wind, like, okay, well, hopefully you've got enough power to get out of seriously yeah i mean it can happen fast so well yeah. anyway dan i have to dictate yeah. my podcast length based on my bladder <laughs> size yeah and, uh, i gotta stop drinking so much coffee when i'm doing these things um <laughs> I, I really appreciate you coming on um you've always been uh someone that i look up to and, and someone that i think is just an impressive human um and yeah, you know, I don't. I don't think you and I have actually got to do a ton of flying together, or any flying uh, that I can recall. But uh, I'm sure you're also a fantastic stick. And uh, congratulations on on getting to classic and and being in a situation that you love being in. Uh, thank you so much for um, you know taking time to share your background and your experience. You know, all this stuff. So many of our listeners are are aspiring to do what you're doing, and so I think it's super cool and a great part of the podcast to be able to actually talk to the industry professionals that are doing what so many individuals want to do. So uh, thank you for that, Dan, uh, to our listeners. Thank you for continuing to listen to the helicopter podcast. Uh, it's amazing to get your feedback. It's uh, love hearing from you. Uh, it's, I'm busier now because like I'm having to, I'm, I've become like a pseudo mentor for, <laughs> for a lot of people, yeah. you know, uh, but I appreciate people reaching out. It's kind of a funny thing. So uh, make sure that you uh, subscribe to the podcast. So uh, every Tuesday when we drop a new episode, you're notified. Uh, and thank you, Dan, for being on the show. Uh, fly safe and keep in touch. Thanks. It was my pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much. See you guys.